I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. British landscape is a glorious one. From lush rolling hills to great green pastures, it's a wondrous place to call home. But what makes these isles so unique isn't just our native nature, but also our history. Far and wide from medieval ruins to heritage estates, the UK is filled with old and significant spaces that continue to inspire. So today we wanted to explore these grounds from bygone eras and the gorgeous gardens within them. We'll be talking with the head gardener Arundel Castle about the shipment of 80,000 bulbs that have just arrived on his doorstep, ready to be planted. And we visit the book-lined halls of the RHS Lindy Library to hear the story of the bicycle boys who toured the length of the country, going from garden to garden, nearly a hundred years ago. But we won't be leaving you without any homework, as we'll be chatting with organic gardener Ellie Mitchell about how to boost biodiversity and beautify your gardens for spring by sowing wildflower seed now. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. sound of tulip bulbs being unloaded from HDVs will be a familiar one with many head gardeners this week, but how many of them are planting around a castle that dates back nearly a thousand years? What began with King Edward the Confessor is now being managed by Martin Duncan, the head gardener of the estate. We spoke to him earlier in the midst of the mayhem. Right, the tulips have arrived. They've arrived on this massive great juggernaut and it's quite a feat in itself. We've taken them up into our yard, our bothy, and into our workshops where we keep them nice and dry. And then from the 1st of November, we'll start planting them, prepping and planting and making the holes. There's always a huge undertaking for the garden team. So the gardeners will be out with pogo sticks now the pogo sticks, we call them pogo sticks, they actually have a bulb plant underneath whilst they have a stick, a bit like a spade or shovel, you know, the handle, and then you jump up and down on it, making the holes. But what we've done, which is quite clever, is we've welded metal plates where your feet go. 
and that means it doesn't cut into your feet and that means you can also push right deep in because tulips like to be planted at least four inches deep if they're going to come back again and so up and down up and down as you can imagine we're putting in about 40,000 in the natural landscape this year in grass so it's quite an undertaking and then the backbreaking work of planting starts taking place a few days later and then people put them in put the top on that's it until the spring in pots i'm not a great believer in lasagna planting i know lots of people are I'm very much a believer in using one level. So you fill half your pot and then you place your tulips. But what I like doing is I like getting a real mix. So you know what time your tulips are going to flower. The books tell you and you know from experience. So you can have a right mix on the top, but placing them really just one uh, tenth of a centimetre apart. So you're getting on a very big terracotta pot. We're putting in 65 tulips just in one pot. In a smaller pot, you might only use 20. So it's one way of doing it. And then you can have a mix. So you can put Purple Dream. Then you can put Purple Prince, the Purple Dream flower above the Purple Prince. And they flower a little bit later than the Purple Prince. So you can catch your different heights and slightly different flowering times to make your season longer that way. One of the important things with tulips, of course, in pots, is always make sure, come the spring, when they're all coming up, they will need a bit of water. Don't saturate them, but they will need watering. That's how we really plant our tulips. And the other way is around the roundhouse or prepared beds, we get quite a wide sort of stick, make a little point, not too much of a point on it, and then we just press that into like a dibber, a very big dibber and we dip those into the ground and then we put those tulips fairly close, you know, only an inch apart. And then we do thousands and a big mass. But it's important to plant your tulips at least four inches deep. If you do that, you'll find they'll come back year and year again. I mean, we've got an area here which has had tulips now for 24 years and they're still coming up. So it's, it is it's great fun. I think my team would be very relieved if I won the lottery that I brought in an extra 10 people to help us out. I do try my best. I've had colleges come and do some bulb planting. Every year, the School of English, I'm a tutor for the English School of Gardening, and so they come and do their practical session here. I think they're always horrified when they first come and see that we do about 3,000 tulips with them, but they really get stuck in. And what's wonderful, they all, all of the students say to me, you know what? We've come here and we've done so much practical work in such a short spell of time. And then, of course, they come back and see the tulips in flower, one of the other sessions here. But they do arrive and then they're quite surprised to see that, yeah, they've come to work. So we're all relieved when they come because normally it's into the mid of November and by then my team are flagging, or <laughs> so am I. And then they come and join in and then it gives us a little boost to have about 20 students on site you know, all jumping up and down. We actually have won the lottery because we're backed by the family here and the trustees. Where else can we do all these things from new projects? I designed the stumpery here and, you know, you do a sketch and they say, oh, go ahead. No, that's a fantastic idea. Tulip Festival, brilliant, you know. So, yeah, I think myself and my team have won the lottery anyway. <laughs> Arundel Castle is one of the most magnificent castles you could possibly imagine. Whilst it's got award-winning gardens 
as well as the most majestic landscape you could possibly imagine. I just believe that, you know, the stately homes have always been something where plant collectors have gone and brought back plants, you know, like the snowdrops, or, you know, we've started the tulip festival here. And I think they are the forerunner for gardens in this country. And everybody comes to expect us to have amazing gardens to match these amazing properties. What I found absolutely fascinating here, I've got the amazing cathedral, which is the backdrop to our main gardens, the Collector Earl's Garden, the Stumpery, which is very Gothic, and it's got Gothic windows which match. At the moment, I'm shaping spires to go with the spires of the cathedral. And then we've got this lovely organic kitchen garden. Yes, in the old days, they would have had very Victorian methods and lots of pesticides, but we adapt with times. And so I've got a fantastic kitchen gardener who does everything organically and permaculturally. We're so lucky here because we are in a fantastic garden and landscape, but we feel like although we're part of history, we're also making history within the gardens. I'd encourage anyone to plant some tulips now. Uh, honestly, even if you start with 10 tulips, just try it. And if you're planting them in your borders, put in the Appledorn variety or something like that. Because if you plant it four inches deep, they'll come back year after year. I mean, 18, my mother's got some and they've been in there for 30 years and they're still as good as new. So what I do is plant them four inches deep, at least in a well-drained soil. And, you know, feel free. You can play with tulips in pots. You can put them in your grass. In the grass, they'll only last for two or three years and they'll get smaller and smaller, but it still looks stunning. And in amongst the daffodils, you get a later flowering. So it is fantastic. Thanks, Martin. It's always a daunting prospect having to plant thousands of anything. I used to work on a lettuce farm and every acre we planted 27,000 iceberg lettuces. Fortunately, we had a big team of people to do it, but we couldn't use a planting machine because the lettuces were destined for a posh supermarket and the base of the lettuce had to be exactly right. If we used a planting machine, the base of the lettuce might be a bit pointed or might be a bit elongated or the stalk might go up too high. So they all had to be planted by hand by a gang of casual workers who were armed with little bricklayers pointing trowels rather than garden trowels. And they would go along at a terrific rate following the tractor that marked out raised beds of a marking out tool. So they just had to pop a lettuce in wherever the two marks crossed. I'm delighted to say that I was driving the tractor, so I didn't have to hurt my back for hours on end popping these lettuces in. Well, I did have a go, and I have to say, every time I see a lettuce in the supermarket now, I treat it with immense respect. A great deal of work goes into that lettuce, much more than you might imagine. Martin said that tulips don't do very well in grass, but happily, there are many, many other bulbs that do fantastically planted into grass, coming back year after year. Daffodils, for example, and at Wisley we have a tall blue flower called the Camassia, which comes from North America, and that's fabulous in the grass. It flowers a bit after the daffodils, so it gives a bit of continuity, and that's worked really well for us. But of course, other bulbs you can plant into grass include crocus, narcissi and daffodils, of course. What else have I been planting? Oh, alliums. We planted some alliums at Wisley, a really vigorous one called Purple Rain, and that seems to be persisting quite well. So I'm going to try the same in my back garden. Now it's time for hushed voices as we step into the inner sanctum of the RHS Edwardian Lindley Library. 
It's time to settle in and hear the terrific tales of the Bicycle Boys. Back in 2015, Marshall Johnson got in touch with the archivist at the RHS Lindley Library to tell her about a collection belonging to his father, three beautiful travel journals written in exquisite detail, detailing his father's epic cycling journey around some of Britain's greatest gardens in 1928. Marshall had the journals and also a wonderful photography album, which was full of wonderful photos of the gardens that Loyal had visited with his friend Sam. And he was really passionate that those journals could be shared with future generations and researchers who might be interested in the historical and also social information that Loyal, his father, found on that epic journey. So Loyal Johnson and Sam Brewster were landscape architecture students at the Massachusetts Agricultural College. And really, they came over as students wanting to experience Britain's greatest gardens for themselves. Now, this was quite an ambitious trip at the time. It's not necessarily something that many students would have thought of doing. And in fact, one of the interesting things about Loyal's journals is that he includes his budget and their attempts to economise. And so when they sailed over the Atlantic, which at the time took 10 days, so it's a 10-day boat journey, they took a third-class cabin, so they weren't travelling in luxury by any means, and they spent as much time as they could up on deck, meeting lots of friends on the way. What's really nice is you get a real sense of the young men's different personalities. Sam seems to have perhaps been the more outgoing of the two, certainly met some lady friends on the way over. Over. The 1920s were quite different in the States to over in the UK. You know, it's in the middle of prohibition. So Loyal and Sam, neither of them were drinkers. And that was something they certainly discussed with young men they met over in the UK. And of course, it was in the years following the First World War. So whilst neither Loyal nor Sam would have fought in the war, it was very much against the backdrop of quite a difficult time. And economically, times were tough. Loyal comments on how friendly he finds the English people he encounters on his journey, and he details all of this in his journals. So after 10 days at sea, Loyal and Sam disembarked at Liverpool, and from the get-go, they immersed themselves in planning a route around the UK. They had a route in mind. We're not sure how they came up with the idea for their route, but we think it may have been through reading magazines such as the National Geographic. Loyal pastes a map in his journal that seems to have come from a magazine at the time. But Loyal and Sam then created their own route and they bought their bicycles in Liverpool, took the train to Betsy Curd in North Wales, admiring the scenery. But then from that point on, they cycle through North Wales, they visit Conway and they visit Bodnant Gardens, then back into England, visiting Alton Towers, also Eton Hall in Cheshire. Due to wet weather, they decide to take the train up to Scotland and visit Edinburgh and various other stops on the way. But it seems that they really weren't a fan of the British public transport system and decided that they preferred the convenience of their bikes. 
So actually, from that point on, having stopped down in Cumbria at Levens Hall and because of unreliable buses, you know, missing the boats on Lake Windermere, they decided to undertake the rest of the trip under their own steam. They were advised not to. They met people who thought they were absolutely balmy uh, for taking the bike. They were told they should hire a car, which they seemed to have decided was too expensive and they also couldn't find a car. But having decided to cycle, they proceed to cycle south through England, visiting Blenheim Palace, Oxford. They cycle down to Devon, visiting Hestercombe House and many, many other stops on the way. And then across the south of England, getting to places like Polston Lacey, Cobham Hall in Kent. They visit Cambridge and the Cambridge Colleges. They also stop in London to do some sightseeing. Eventually, after three months, Their journey starts on the 18th of June, and then by the time they get to September, they have cycled one and a half thousand miles, 1,526 miles by bike, visiting upwards of 80 gardens. We can't put a definite number on it because some of the places they visit, we can't decide whether they count as gardens or not. Some of them are public parks. They also visit lots of country houses and visitor attractions that we'd know today, you know, cathedrals, the Tower of London. So we like to say the Bicycle Boys visited 80 gardens in three months. But that doesn't include all of the many, many other places that they cycled to, battling wind, rain, insect bites, even though they were really adventurous and seemed to have thrived on the challenge. They certainly weren't a fan of the British weather. They had to turn their rain inside out to try and stay dry. They were carrying everything they needed in these small 18-inch suitcases that they buckled to the back of their bikes. So they had to carry everything they needed with them, staying in lodging houses, staying with some relatives and friends as well on the way. So they had to be really well organised. But sometimes, you know, things didn't go to plan. They had to persuade gardeners and homeowners to let them into the country house gardens. And sometimes they didn't succeed. So it's really interesting to read about all of these escapades and their highs and lows of this epic cycling trip. I hope that Loyal and Sam's story reminds us that you can experience your local park or go further afield without needing to drive. I hope it encourages people to cycle. One of the exciting things about this project is we've called out to local cycling groups who've retraced the steps of Loyal and Sam and cycling groups in Kent and different parts of the country have retraced the cycle tracks of Loyal and Sam. So I really hope it makes people think about going out into nature, getting out of the car, and really spending just some time contemplating how lucky we are to have so many beautiful places around us. And also just a reminder of how important it is to preserve those parts of our landscape that could otherwise disappear if we don't remember to value them. Thanks, Antonia. That was a fabulous story of the bicycle boys visiting all these estates. The life of an estate gardener is something that's been studied and recorded in great detail in the times when estates are at their very peak. And I've spoken to a few of the old gardeners and it was a different life. They would start early in the morning and they'd start off with a cup of tea and some porridge that had been simmering overnight on the banked up fire. And then they'd have to go out to the greenhouses. And again, no gas or oil fires then. It was all coke or coal. 
and the fires were banked up overnight so they didn't have to spread out the coals and add more coal to keep the greenhouses going. Someone might be unlucky and have to go out in the middle of the night to check the fires, but they were usually pretty good at keeping them going. And then they'd have breakfast, I don't know, nine, ten o'clock after they got everything ready and that would be their first meal of the day and then they'd carry on until the evening when they'd again have to bank up the fires in the winter to keep the greenhouses warm. Life for an estate gardener is much different now. Some of my colleagues from Wisley have gone on to work on estates. Some of them are even head gardeners at estates and it's a much more modern environment working usually from about seven to four and in all these small working places it's usually quite a good camaraderie in these sort of places but the most interesting ones perhaps are an estate garden where there's just two gardeners or maybe just one and it's it's quite a responsibility to work on your own or with just one person and uh, these people are masters of all sorts of trades the work they put in to produce these fantastic gardens is admirable now if today's show has inspired you to add a touch of whimsy to your garden it's time to consider wildflowers. This week will be pretty much the last opportunity to get scattering those seeds in time for a delightful array of flowers and grasses come springtime next year. We spoke to an organic gardener and landscape designer to hear her expert advice. Wildflowers are essentially the flowers that are native to the UK. They exist in so many different places. They often pop up as maybe we like to call them weeds in cracks in pavements. But most of them are really resilient plants and they do grow in all sorts of different places. For us, the definition of a weed is a bit of a funny one. It's essentially a plant that is turned up outside of our control. The wrong plant in the wrong place, let's put it like that. And in the past, when we considered our gardens to be hugely regimented areas and under the direct control of the gardener, these weeds used to just drive people absolutely mad. And there was a permanent attempt to try and remove them. But now as our attitudes have relaxed and we start to really appreciate the power of these wildflowers that exist in the UK and how they can just turn up of their own volition, we're seeing people increasingly leave them and we are very very happy to see that happen they're fantastic for pollinators a lot of them are the larval food plant for lots of our invertebrates and we think they're a hugely valuable contribution to our wider environment The RHS conducted a study called the Plants for Bugs a few years ago now, and it was shown that native plants, so things like these humble wildflowers that turn up seemingly from nowhere, they have the edge for wildlife. They're fantastic sources of pollen and nectar, and they've essentially co-evolved with the wildlife that we have in our country. We think there is actually a place for them alongside non-native planted plants, but they do have this edge, so we'd always definitely welcome them into our gardens as much as possible. So we're coming into early November and especially if you're in the south of the country, you've got just enough time to get your wildflower seed down if that's what you'd like in your garden. Ideally, you're looking for a sunny position, ideally well-drained, although there are some wildflowers that would do well in slightly damper conditions like meadowsweet, for example. But yeah, our tips are to make sure if it's going into grass to scarify your grass as much as you possibly can. That gives the seed that you're putting down the actual chance to come into contact with the soil and then hopefully to germinate come the following spring.
When it comes to designing a wildflower meadow, it really is up to you exactly where you want it. But our top tip recommendation would be to really consider what soil type you have, what aspect you are looking at, and essentially treat it like a border. So there is still the odd adage of right plant, right place. And that does exist still with our wildflowers. Some prefer acid soil, some prefer calcareous soil. So it's really important to do your research before you actually go and throw some wildflower seed down. As garden designers, we actually had a client where they had a small child, so they did need a short mown lawn, but they did have a corner of that lawn that they were happy to give over to wildflowers. Indeed, it was very welcome. So we set about scarifying the corner of this lawn and we put down yellow rattle seed. This is the wildflower meadows friend. It's semi-parasitic on grass, so it will weaken the grass and allow other things to come up. But in that instance, we actually decided to put in plugs and we put in some field scabious and some knapweed. And the following spring, both of those things did come up and flower beautifully in this corner. So I don't think there's any real rule on the size that your wildflower meadow needs to be. This really was about two metres by one metre a really small patch, but it looked fantastic. It's almost like a border within the lawn. We got to see this wildflower meadow patch in full flow the following spring, and it just looked wonderful. And actually some extra plants turned up like yarrow, and we also had marjoram pop up. I don't know where that came from, but the butterflies were just all over it. Loads of common blue butterflies fluttering around, feeding on the nectar. It really was an absolute buzz of activity. There is almost an endless list of wildflowers that you could sow into a lawn, but we do tend to go for some staples. And field scabious is absolutely a fantastic one with its pincushion flowers held aloft its foliage. It is absolutely fantastic food plant for the butterflies that come to your garden. The second plant that we would always go to is knapweed. I really hate the fact that knapweed is called knapweed because it doesn't sound particularly beautiful, but it is a really fantastic plant. It has purple flowers, again, held high to sway in the breeze, and it is an absolutely fantastic food plant for so many of our inverts. The traditional English garden has always had a very, very important place for flowers. And that's because they are beautiful to look at. It's fantastic for our mental health to be surrounded by blooms that are buzzing with wildlife. And as time goes on, our understanding of the importance of flowering plants really encourages us to keep that tradition alive and pep it up as much as you can. Go out into your gardens. Are there any gaps in flowering time? If so, then fill it, find a plant that flowers in that gap and you will not be disappointed. So this is really the last chance in 2022 for you to get your wildflower seed down in the ground so that you can enjoy a wonderful bouquet come 2023. Thanks, Ellie. To hear more from Ellie and her partner, Ben, check out the Wildlife Garden podcast. The link will be in the show notes. Well, if you've got the space, I definitely recommend having a bit of whimsy and fun with wildflowers. You can either sow seeds or for small areas, and I think this is a good way for beginners to start, you can buy plug plants. That's plants grown in little thumb-sized plugs, and you can pop them in and give them care and attention, particularly if you're growing in containers, and you should get good results first time. With luck, your plug plants will set seed and you'll have a little colony starting. (laughs) 
Well, that's about it for today. At this time of year, the demands of the allotment and garden are beginning to die down, so I'm starting thinking about going for a country walk at the weekend. Having heard about the Bicycle Boys, I think it's going to have to be a country walk with a estate and lots of woodland and lovely trees and things nearby. As it happens, I live very close to Polston Lacey in Surrey, so I think that might be my destination next weekend. When I am in the garden, there isn't a great deal to do now. I've just finally finished the last harvest of ornamental gourds, and I've sown the Italian ryegrass that'll look after the soil over winter. So it's on with the pruning and clearing up and mending all the fences. But that's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.